This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I think everybody that's watching the news today would agree that there is a great revitalization going on in American labor. It's actually been going on for some time, and I had a tiny role in part of it, which I would like to get down. After a wonderful upsurge that started around 1932, labor lost its way in 1947. But the membership couldn't be ignored for very long. The revitalization began before my time in the 1960s. It was an extension of the civil rights upsurge that began around 1954. African-American unionists carried the lessons and tactics of the civil rights movement into their union. For the most part, they were rebuffed, but nothing is ever completely lost in the progressive movement. People learn, people remember. The newest, probably the most important twist in the labor reform movement happened this past year in 2021, when over 60% of the United Auto Workers members and retirees voted to do away with the old delegate system of electing their top leadership. They moved to a more democratic, one-member, one-vote method, and that was an important step. It was a setback to the old administrative caucus that has dominated the United Auto Workers consistently since 1946. I think a look back at earlier reform efforts gives some perspective to today's important developments. Reform was very strong in the miners' union after Jock Yablonski and his family were murdered by a rival in his union on December the 31st, 1969. In the steelworkers' union, reform was clearly on the agenda when Ed Sadlowski ran for president around 1975. I think Sadlowski might have been the first union candidate since 1947 to allow Reds to help him campaign, and that was a very big change. I campaigned for Sadlowski, but my real role in labor's reform was a lot later, and it was in my own union. For me, it was 1985 and the New Directions movement in the United Auto Workers. My part and the origin of the New Directions movement started in the middle of a contract fight with LTV Corporation in Grand Prairie, Texas. The fight had actually started in March 1984. The first nine months or so showed everything that was wrong in the UAW and in most of the labor movement. Our union, Local 848, didn't have a clue about carrying out a fight. The blame for that goes back to 1947 when the anti-union Taft-Hartley law passed. It outlawed the most progressive unionists and left the opportunist business unionists in charge. Business unionists had no fight in them. They put their full confidence into working with management, and they gave up on mobilizing their union memberships. Local 848 members, like most Americans, had never fought for anything and certainly not for a contract. Unionism consisted of working with management for crumbs from their table, then working on a grievance procedure 
to keep them from stealing their crumbs back during the life of the contract. But in 1984, LTD was a profitable corporation when it offered giant takeaways to the union. The assistant director of UAW Region 5 was named Jerry Tucker. He was experienced in plenty of fights, not necessarily in unions, but in the civil rights movement. He pushed the negotiating committee at Local 848 to turn down the contract offer and design a new strategy for a fight. They knew from the very beginning that we weren't going to be able to pull off a strike. We weren't going to get a lot of our members to walk out and win a contract that way. We only had 70% of the membership, 70% uh, of the bargaining unit was even organized. There were 30% scabs in the plant. So we didn't have a really good chance at winning a strike. But Tucker had a strategy that he called running the plant backwards, or it was often called work to rule. Tucker thought it was a new strategy, and he told us it was a new. But the history-conscious workers, of whom there were hardly any, recognized this tactic for what it was. It was a slowdown. Union members were asked to do exactly what they were required to do and nothing else. Our main slogan was no contract, no overtime. On May the 21st, four workers and I were fired for refusing to work overtime. Later, a few dozen more were fired, mostly for, for participating in a walkout on the next day after I was fired. Initially, it didn't work at all. Our local union membership hadn't the slightest idea of how to run a slowdown. The membership certainly didn't know. I don't even think Jerry Tucker had a clear idea. The big walkout and rally on the day after we were fired netted no more than 300 workers. I counted them carefully. That was about 6% of the bargaining unit. I knew then that we were in a lot of trouble, a lot more trouble than anybody was saying. We certainly couldn't have won a strike with 6% only willing to walk out for one afternoon. Only 6%. The company went ahead and implemented their last and final offer, which included their takeaways, and then they stopped collecting our dues for us. Now, American unions in 1984 did not have the first clue on how to collect their own dues. They had had dues checkoff from companies since before World War II. In fact, companies liked it that way. In 1941, Mr. Ford actually gave dues checkoffs to the UAW voluntarily because he wanted the union to depend on him financially. He wanted to be the one who collected the dues for the union. And it worked. Local 848 made its biggest, nearly fatal mistake as soon as it was, as it was clear that we had to collect our own dues. They assumed that people would voluntarily come to the union hall every month and pay their monthly dues. Let me pause to brag. I told them right from the beginning that people are not accustomed to paying their bills in person. I asked them to send out a monthly bill, but the financial secretary told me, quote, if they won't come over here and pay their dues, they don't deserve this union, end quote. 
I heard that over and over for the rest of the year while my union went broke. People did not come over and voluntarily pay their dues in person. By Christmas, fewer than 20% of our members were caught up on dues, and that's just the official count. Insiders said it was 10%. Our financial disaster was hardly the worst part of the story in 1984. Our program of no contract, no overtime fell flat on its face the day I got fired. Even though I organized pickets every Saturday morning through that winter, our members grabbed up the overtime. Our top officers of the union did too. My part up to the end of 1984 had been to organize the 65 fired workers and keep them in the struggle. I had zero leadership role in directing the struggle, but I made sure that the firees were not forgotten by getting a big bunch of us to every meeting, by picketing the plant when people went in to work overtime, by publicizing our events, and by helping organize a series of publicity stunts to keep people thinking about our fight. So the, re- the firees had a big role. December was a miserable time for everybody. Remember, this started in March. So we got to December. We saw that we weren't collecting our dues. We were all very blue in December of 1984, especially the 65 fired workers. Only about 30 of the 65 were doing anything to keep up the fight. The rest had just gone off looking for other jobs. News from the International Union was particularly depressing. Our union leadership told us that the International UAW wanted us to take the concessions and go back to work. One of the settlements, we were told, was negotiated between our UAW financial secretary and LTV management on a golf course. But President Carol Butler and Assistant Regional Director Jerry Tucker were not giving up. But by December of 1984, they were certainly ready for some new tactics. This is when we start the part about revitalizing the union. Our union leadership did a major turnaround in January 1985. They decided to collect dues inside the plant. That was unusual. They handed out receipt books to all of the elected union stewards. There were, at that time, I guess about 30 of them. And they were all given receipt books. And every activist inside the plant, everybody that was interested in the union, was asked to help get the members to pay up their dues. Now think about that. This wasn't just a financial decision, or it wasn't just a minor organizational change. It was a turn toward mobilizing the membership, exactly what the union movement hadn't been doing since business unionism had taken over. And it worked, too. Our percent of dues-paying members rose steadily from January until we won our victory in July. That was the difference when we turned toward the members and let the members take a role. As the receipts and cash dollars started pouring into the hall, we bogged down again because we couldn't keep track of it. Unions had not adapted to new technology. Uh, The old bookkeeping methods would not 
suffice at all once we started getting over a thousand people to pay their dues. Fortunately for the local, I had accountant training, computer training, and this is the most important thing, I could type. Hardly anybody else in the plant could. I rigged up a Commodore 64. You remember those? A little brown computer about the size of your keyboard. I rigged up a Commodore 64 and two floppy disk readers and kept track of all the dues. An extra benefit of putting all this on computer was I was able to tattle on the elected leaders as to who was collecting their dues and who wasn't. Every time Jerry Tucker visited, I could present him with graphs showing which departments and which job families were on the program and which weren't. By June 1985, we still didn't have an impressive percent in plain numbers, but my trusty little computer could show that we were pretty solid in certain critical units, especially in the machine shop. And if the machine shop shut down so that everybody else wouldn't be able to get parts for the airplanes, then they couldn't build any airplanes. So we knew that we could shut down, or we were confident that we could shut down the plant for the first time in the entire struggle. We thought we had the potential to shut LTV down. Leadership called a strike. Management asked for a settlement even before we walked out. So the strike ended up lasting only 11 hours because we had a meeting already set. We went to the meeting and we ratified a new contract that was a big victory for us. On July the 5th of 1985, all of the fired workers put on our union shirts and lined up at the front gate of LTV. We stayed in line. It was like a giant conga line while Chairman B.J. Meeks took us one by one to our proper departments and let us go back to work. It took all day. I posted a video of this. Our little battle at UAW Local 848 was won. I have a longer account of this on my uh, personal website, lilliscola.us. Lilliscola is spelled L-I-L-L-E-S-K-O-L-E dot U-S. L-I-L-L-E-S-K-O-L-E dot U-S. Lilliscola. And on my Gene Lance YouTube account, I have 52 videos about that long struggle. Our victory was celebrated all over the union movement. I was given credit for what I did, and I was given a new nickname, Golden Fingers Lance, for my accounting and my computer work. I guess at that point that some of us thought we had really helped curve the union movement around in a good direction. But we were disappointed in due time. The first and most bitter part of it for me personally came almost immediately after the contract. We were told that the money we had borrowed when we were fired, it was $96. I think it started out at $86 a week and then it went up to 96 and, and then it disappeared. But anyway, all the money that we had borrowed during that time to keep ourselves together, we were told that we weren't going to have to pay that back so that the three months penalty that we paid on our back pay evened out. And we thought if we don't have to pay that money back and if we get all but three months of our back pay, 
we'll be what we called made whole. In other words, we'll be right where we would have been if we'd have still been working. However, we didn't count on the international. The international came down and said, oh no, you have to pay back every cent and you have to pay it back right now. I still remember the little toad that came into the union hall and told me that I had to pay up right now. I said, no, why can't we work something out? He said, no, you have to pay up. Or either if you don't pay up right now, you're a freeloader on the union. That's what the international rep said. A freeloader on the union? I had been standing outside that plant for one year, one month, one week, and one day, working my tail off to win that struggle. And the international rep came in and called me a freeloader. When all of the fireys found out that we were not going to get to keep the money we had borrowed, it broke us apart. I had thought I was going to be able to keep at least 30 good union activists together, but it didn't happen because we all divided on this question of paying the money back. Some of them said, no, I'm just not going to pay it back. I'll never pay it back and they can't make me. And that's what they did. A couple of them went so far as to get out of the union and they became scabs for the rest of the time that they worked at LTV. They were that angry at the international. Others paid up right away because they wanted to stay on the good side of the international and they wanted to run for union office. I started a petition, like I often do, and I was able eventually to get the international to give us a payback plan over a year. And so I and a few others paid them back the money we had borrowed a little bit at a time. But as I said, that divided the firees and we were never able to get back together again. So that was a very bitter setback that came not from my union local and not even from the company. It came from the International UAW. I resolved right away that if there was a reform movement in the United Auto Workers, I was going to be in it. Well, Jerry Tucker started a reform movement right after the victory at LTV. He ran for regional director in Region 5, and he won. However, the International Union appealed it. It got held up in court. And even though he had won a three-year term, he only got to serve about one year of it. By that time, we had started something called the New Directions Movement. For the next 30 years, <laughs> a lot of people were afraid to even say Jerry Tucker or afraid to say New Directions because the International Union came out strongly against the reform movement. It went on for a few years, and there were some really important names associated with it. Paul Schrader, for example, had been an assistant to Walter Ruther, who was uh, probably the most uh, outstanding leader that the UAW ever had. And Paul Schrader was with us. He was on our side. Michael Moore had just made an important movie called Roger and Me about the UAW. And I remember very clearly he gave a speech on our behalf and donated $1,000 from his income from that movie. The most important person outside of Jerry Tucker himself 
was Victor Ruther. Victor Ruther was Walter Ruther's brother, and some would say that he had more to do with the UAW being successful than Walter. Of the three Ruther brothers, I have heard it said, Victor was the best one. But at this time in 1985, he was the only one left because the other two had already passed on. Victor Ruther made cheese boards that we sold. You know, it was a wooden board uh, with hardwood that uh, people could cut cheese on. And we sold those to raise money for New Directions. Part of the big fight drifted off into Canada. The Canadians also were angry at the leadership of the United Auto Workers because just like Local 848, they did not want to take concessions. And the rest of the Auto Workers Union was taking concessions. So the Canadians split and took 300,000 people out of the UAW. Victor went with them and spoke at their first international convention when they started the Canadian auto workers separate from the UAW. I only had a small role. I remember here in Dallas where I live, there was a battery plant that was organized by the UAW. It only had 60 or 100 members, but they had a president, and so I took him out for a steak dinner at my own expense and tried to convince him to vote with the New Directions movement in the upcoming convention. The New Directions movement put out literature with solutions to problems, and here are some of the problems that they talked about. Outsourcing, that was jobs going into other countries and leaving American workers with no jobs. Runaway plants, that's where whole factories would be moved, particularly to Mexico. Whipsawing, whipsawing consisted of having the company make different local unions bid on who would take the most concessions. They would say, we're gonna close this plant or that one. Now, which one of you is gonna take the most concessions? Whoever takes the most concessions will stay open and we'll close the other one. That was whipsawing, and there was nothing anybody could do about it, and the UAW International was not fighting it very properly. The New Directions movement was against team concept. That's partnering with management. And the UAW at that time was leading the whole nation with the idea of team concept. Underlying this concept was the idea that the bosses were not really our enemies that we can work with the bosses. Our real enemies in these days, back in the late 1980s, our real enemies, they said, were the Japanese. So if we joined management with team concept, we could beat Toyota and Honda, or so they said. The New Directions movement said that's not true. You cannot work with management. You take their concessions, they'll just want more. Another issue for New Directions was new technology. Companies were implementing robots on the assembly lines and putting a lot of people out of work. Giveaway contracts and takeaway contracts, of course, New Directions was against, especially when companies were making good profits, and they were making good profits in those days. A major issue was democracy in the union. The New Directions movement wanted one person, one vote instead of the old delegated way of electing officers. I don't know that I really understood this back in when it first became known to me, 
But I was for it because it sounded more democratic. One person, one vote, or one member, one vote. This is what we won in 2021, 30 years after the New Directions movement tried to bring it up. Well, I soon found out that people were scared to death of New Directions. So they were scared to death of, of Jerry Tucker. And uh, the guy in the battery plant wouldn't have anything to do with us, even though I had wasted my money buying him a steak dinner. People were afraid to help New Directions because they relied on the international to settle their grievances, to help them with negotiations, to help them with the legal department, and particularly with their arbitrations. Now, unions try to grieve their problems and try to get management to agree to, to settle grievances. However, oftentimes they fail. And when that happens under the labor laws that exist today, you go to arbitration. The arbitration is supposed to be a neutral process. It's quite expensive, but generally speaking, the locals did not handle their own arbitrations. They usually let the international do it. So if the international was not on your side in your local, you were not going to win your arbitrations. So that's why the union officers were scared to death of the international. And I found this out very clearly when I went to my first convention of the United Auto Workers and saw what really happens at those conventions. As I mentioned a while ago, the old delegate method for electing top officers was for the local union to elect delegates and then those delegates go to the convention and they are the ones who vote for the top officers. What I did not know was that the international reps, the paid agents of the international, would be sitting right there at our table watching everything we did and telling people around on the floor of the convention, here's how to vote, here's who to vote for, here's when to stick your hand up, here's what to say. I did not know that the international reps ran the conventions, and they did. I compared them as soon as I realized this. I compared them to the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard in ancient Rome were the people who were supposed to guard the emperor. But then they got the idea, if we're guarding the emperor, why don't we just take over and kill the emperor? So they did. And for there was, there was a period of time in Roman history when the bodyguards for the emperor took over. And that's what was going on in the UAW. The international reps were running the union on behalf of the International Executive Board. At the convention, Mr. Tucker lost. He ran for president. In fact, I had a role in that too. I remember standing up at a, at a New Directions meeting, a national meeting, and arguing that if Tucker wanted to run for president, we certainly should let him. I don't know if I was the one who actually made the, no the nomination, but I, would, I definitely was one of the voices who settled the argument and got them to vote to run Jerry Tucker for president of the United Auto Workers. He lost. Even after he lost, we, thought, we still thought we were going to win in Region 1. That was the region that included California. We didn't win in Region 1. We lost by one or two votes. Uh, so we came away from that convention with no victories. Later on, at another meeting, 
I was standing beside Carol Butler, who was the president of my union and someone that I admired. And he handed me $200 in cash. He said, go to the New Directions meeting and give them this $200 and don't say anything about me. And that's when I realized that it was over. That even Carol Butler did not want the International to know that he was associated with New Directions. He still wanted to give them $200, but he didn't want anybody to know about it. And that's why he gave me the 200 And that was the end of that. I found a few things in my files from New Directions. I found three copies of a newspaper called The Arrow, which I myself wrote and distributed around the plant. It was a, The Arrow pointing toward New Directions. I found a few copies of the leaflets that were put out by Jerry Tucker and the New Directions. And uh, one of them, the whole leaflet was about one member, one vote. I found a few pictures of Jerry Tucker. I found a picture of Victor Ruther and his wife, Sophie, looking while the votes were being counted at the convention and we were losing. So New Directions disappeared fast because the union officers that had associated with the New Directions wanted it to be very clear that they did not want to associate with it any longer. They wanted to win their grievances. They wanted to use the international legal department and they wanted to win their arbitrations. So that was the end of the New Directions, but not the end of the reform movement. And I'm very proud to say that American labor has really been coming back since those hard times. And it's really coming back strongly today. And the UAW just this year or just last year in 2021 got one member, one vote at last. It's not the way I wanted to get it because the government had a hand in it. I wanted to get it just because the members wanted it. But the members did vote for it and it's now happened. And union reactivation goes on. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra.